Greetings. Welcome to Wednesday night. So we're, are we, we're all ready to start? Let's, let's pray. Father, we bless you. We pray that you uh, lead us and guide us in our study tonight, that um, as we open your word together, it will make a difference in our hearts, that we would not be the same after we've looked into the mirror of your word than we were before we did. Father, I pray that you would help me to express and to, to uh, teach, to talk about those things that are on your heart. Father, we thank you that you have preserved this for us, and may we rightly divide it, interpret it, understand it, and apply it. We bless you and we thank you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Um, hang on here. I've got a passage I'm going to read tonight. And I put that, uh, I put the Bible back there, so I need to go get it. Hey, Joe, can you come here one second? Okay, so there's a, we're going to be talking about, I'll just give you a little why I have this, we're going to be talking about a character named Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus or Antiochus IV Epiphanes, and um, in the resulting Maccabean revolt, this is going to come up as a result of what we study tonight, and um, this Bible has the book of Maccabees in it. And so we're going to actually go look, because we're going to read about it prophesied, and then we're going to read about what happened, so we can see, this is Daniel prophesying it before it happens. Here's a recording of it in history after it happened. And we kind of get a, get that, that before and after feel and, um, uh, on it. So, all right. So we are in, we're starting chapter 8. We already do chapter 8? All right, so, um, Wow. We got way past where we were. I don't know how I got down there. I hit something. So the main source is Dr. Witter, um, Wendy Witter. We're using her work. We're using this from, uh, why? why is it jumping? No. Let's try that. So we're using uh, Lagos Mobile Ed um, and uh, the work from, um, uh, uh, the course that, that she put together on the book of Daniel. And uh, so first question, the theology of Daniel. We got this, this is kind of like the overall theology. What are the three main points of the theology we have in here? So, so we'll start, you know, the first one's worth 15, the second one's worth 30, and the third one is worth 46. <laughs> so what's the first one? The sovereignty of God. That's right. What's the second one? Thank you. The what? That's right. The care, the care of the continuing care for his people. And what's the third one? Theology through story. That's right. The, we're learning from the story, from the narrative. And so, let me ask this: Why? Why? 
Um, why would the, God's continuing care for his people be one of the themes of Daniel? Why, why would that be a theme? Exactly. They're in exile. They're wondering where God is. They're wondering, who are you, God? Why did you let us, why did you let us get taken out of our land? You know, even though he prophesied over and over that it would happen all the way back in the book of Deuteronomy and forward, probably back in Leviticus. So, um, so they're, they're in exile shock. And Daniel uh, uh, um, writes this, this book, this work, to demonstrate God is sovereign, to demonstrate he continues to care for his people, and to demonstrate um, that, uh, and, and to teach us how the, uh, that, that, that we learn these things through the stories themselves, through paying attention to the details, what's in it, what's not in it. Why did the author select these details? So the first half is, is what type of, what genre of literature? Anybody know? Anybody remember? You can. Oh, you can't look at the screen. You can turn around and look at that screen. <laughs> or it's what narrative? That's right. Fifty-two points because you weren't even looking at anything. Fifty-two points on that one. Very good. And we we went through these first six stories: the king's food and the the. Uh, in fact, we're going to look at them all in a second. Um, what's the second half? What type of literature? Apocalyptic. Somebody say apocalyptic. I thought I heard that. Apocalyptic. So that was even harder. So, you know, 73 points. Uh, a prophetic type literature. And that's what we're in. This, the literature we're going to do tonight is apocalyptic. It's, it's, um, it's a apocalyptic prophetic type of literature. And so the, John Lennox breaks this book down. I'm on the chart if you're following in your notes. I'm on that chart, part A, part B. Um, uh, where the first five chapters are a, a, a mirrored by the, the, the um, chapters 6 through 12. And what do you have? You have Daniel coming into the Babylonian court. In chapter 1, you have Daniel coming into the Medo-Persian court. He uh, has a conflict in both, and he's vindicated in both. Then we get to the two images uh, the Nebuchadnezzar's dream and the golden image. And then we get uh, a con- contrasting, I mean, uh, comparing to that two visions of beasts. And tonight we're going to go into the second vision of beasts. So that first vision of beasts in chapter 7 was how many? Four. And so four, and now we're going to have two. Um, and then we got into two kings disciplined, and eventually we'll be getting to two writings explained. And so we have this parallelism to the structure. So the theme, the central theme of chapter 1 was the providential hand. God is, the providential hand of God is behind all events that happen. Now this is going to be hugely important when we're looking at the story tonight. Because we're going to be wondering how in the world can uh, 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 these evil things going on, they look like they are stopping God's plan. So it's really important to know that through that, the the providential hand of God is working through all events, even when people choose that which is evil, which is wrong. He doesn't decide for them to do that, but he can work through it. So then we get to chapter 2. We switch from what language to what language? Who's got that one? That's right. That's right. That's worth 39 points. Very good. From, we're switching from Hebrew to Aramaic, and we, we begin the Aramaic section, and that Aramaic section is written in a particular style. Anybody remember what that style's called? Chiastic structure, or a chiasm, a chiasm, chiasm, chiastic structure. That's right. And where is the main point of a chiasm? In the middle, in the central. That's right. And, and so, 
Um, so we're beginning, we're bookending it with chapter 2, and we're going to end it with chapter 7. Um, and the, the purpose of chapter 2 was the God of heaven is the true source of wisdom and power. He, he shares his power with us. This is from the beginning of creation. He intended to. We are his imagers. He's given us dominion. He shares it with us, but he holds us accountable for that as well. And there will be a time in which there is judgment for which we've been held accountable. How many of the parables say the same thing? God gave you how many talents? And he comes back and says, what did you do with those talents? He shared his power with us, and he holds us accountable to it. He gives everybody a Nina, and he comes back and says, what did you do with the the Mina? Right? He holds us accountable with what he's given us. And this is the theme, one of the themes that are held throughout this. Um, And ultimately, he will establish his kingdom. Chapter 3, we got into the bottom line was what? No matter what, they would not bow down. If God delivers them, if God doesn't deliver them, we are not bowing down to the powers of this world. It doesn't matter what you decree, how powerful you think you are. You're not as powerful as the God of the universe. And no matter what you do, I'm not bowing down. Telling us that faith is what? Courageous. Exactly. Faith is courageous. There is courage to faith. It's not just something we believe up here. It's not something that so that we get something. It's because God alone is worthy of worship, period. And so we move into chapter 4, which is the heart of the chiasm. It's the first of two kings that are judged. Nebuchadnezzar's judged, and what does he do? He repents. He gives his heart to the Lord. He returns. He returns. But then we get into, uh, uh, and what's the whole point of the story? What happened to him when he denied God? His mind went mad. It is madness to deny the sovereignty of God. This is the point of the story. This is the theme of the story. It is madness to deny his sovereignty, his grace, his glory, his power. It's madness to take that credit for yourself. And then we move over to chapter 5, and we have another king that is judged. Now, it's important that we remember this king that's judged. Because this king um, uh, is going to foreshadow, is actually going to come up in our story tonight. He came up last week. He's going to come up again tonight. So which king is this that gets judged? It's the second of two kings. Belshazzar. That's right. And, and, and he, this, this, he is one who does not repent. He is one who is arrogant. He is one who, who despises God, who shakes his fist at God. And as a result, it's not only the end of Belshazzar, it's the end of Babylon. And, and Babylon, as a nation, steps out of the picture, and we move to the Medo-Persian court. Yet, he comes back into the picture tonight, and we'll see why. But next thing, so the head of gold is gone, something lesser comes, the arms and chest of silver. So we're moved, progressing through history as was prophesied. So right in the middle of the book, that which is prophesied starts to come to pass. And we see these things. All right, so then we get to chapter 6. And all of these themes are summarized in one place. God is indestructible. He will have an eternal dominion. He performs signs and wonders. He rescues and delivers. All these things are important. Why? Because we're about to move to the most terrifying part of the book. All these stories set us up for what happens in this apocalyptic literature. These things that cause Daniel to, to strain. What am I seeing? Why am I seeing? This is terrifying. And so we got into chapter 7, and, and chapter 7 was the very end of the chiastic structure. It bookend um, the, uh, 
the, that first half of the book, it's the last chapter that's written in Aramaic, and it actually is the hinge. It's, it's the hinge, it's the center, center or central focus of the entire book of Daniel, chapter 7. He, he, he has this strange vision, this dream, this terrifying dream that, that literally spans the, the history of mankind. And then the, then the kingdoms of man are destroyed. And he has the throne room scene. The central focus is the throne room scene. The ancient of days are seated. Books are open. Evil is judged. And the kingdom is given to the one like a son of man. And he shares that kingdom with, with the saints, with his holy ones. And this is the consummation of it. So now, what we're going to do, we get to chapter 8, like the chiasm, we're kind of going to go backwards a bit. We're not, we're not going to see the broad view, we're going to focus on one specific view. Now, we're going to, I believe we're going to touch on the broad view, but we're kind of going backwards. Why? Because seven's the center, now we're going to be pulling out. You know, like in a chiasm, you build to your center, and then you build back out? Well, chapter eight's going to build back out a little bit. Um, and we're going to keep referring back as we go through the rest of these chapters to this overall message we had in chapter 7. That What is that message? Whatever happens under human rule, in the end, the sons of the kingdom will rule with the one like the son of, the man, son of man. This is the central message. Whatever happens under human rule, in the end, the sons of the kingdom... The holy ones of God, the saints of God, will rule with the one like a son of man. There will be. So therefore, therefore, there is more to reality than what we see. And that more is worth living for and even dying for. Because that's going to be the issue that's going to come up. All right. So that moves us into Daniel chapter 8. That's the setup. That's where the book is moving. That's the motion in the book as we come into chapter 8. So um, overall, what are we looking at when we come into chapter 8 here? Looking at an overview of it. Um, Excuse me. Well, number one. We're still in apocalyptic literature. We're in this strange kind of literature that's filled with symbolism. Um, and it's, it's, it's prophetic in nature, yet we don't see God speaking directly. We see him speaking through intermediaries. And, um, and we get these symbols that, that have some obscure meanings and need interpretation. Um, we, we are, uh, we're in chapter 8, we're literally in the first chapter outside of the Aramaic chiasm. We're leaving that Aramaic chiasm, we're leaving the Aramaic, and we're making a shift. And there's several shifts that happen in this chapter. Shift number one is we're shifting back from Aramaic back to Hebrew. Chapter 1 started in Hebrew, we moved to Aramaic, now we're back to Hebrew, and the rest of the book is going to be in Hebrew. Um, this is going to be the second vision that Daniel has personally. Now, what, what's different about the visions and dreams in the book from the first half and the second half? What, what's Daniel's connection to visions and dreams in the first half? Yeah, he's the interpreter. He's the one, he's the one that has all the answers. In the second half... What's, what's Daniel's relationship to the visions and dreams? Yeah, he has them, and he needs help interpreting them. Every single one. Which is, by the way, a, 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 one of the um, a key ways of understanding apocalyptic literature. There's an interpreter that comes along and helps the, 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 the dreamer, the one having the, vis- the visionary, understand what it is they've seen. So, it's an interesting note about, about chapter 8, and it's this. We're going to have it. We're, Daniel's going to have it. He's not going to know it. There's going to be an interpreter. Interpreter's going to come along. And after he interprets, Daniel's still going to go, oh, yeah, I'm not really sure I really understood all that. 
We're going to get to the end, which is actually should be comforting. Because we're going to study all this. And we're going to say it could be this and it could be that and it could be this and it could be that. And guess where we're going to end up? With Daniel going, well, I'm not really exactly sure. I know a little bit. I know several things. But I can't be 100% positive. I just know that this does contain the prophetic word of God. I can see a lot of that did happen. I can see what came to pass. But there's still going to be some places where we're not going to be 100%. And that's okay. Daniel wasn't. And he had an angel tell him what it meant. (laughs) All right. So we're going to see another shift. The focus is going to narrow. We're going from the four beasts to two beasts. And so that when we do that, we're shifting from the broad view of human history, the four beasts were this broad view of human history, and we're going to shift back specifically to this view where the Jews are back in the land. The temples are the temple is is rebuilt. Um and so all this so got to remember Daniel's having this vision before any of that happens. It hasn't happened yet. He's still, the Jews are still in, in Persia at this point. They're in Babylon still. They haven't gone back. And, and so this dream at one level is going to tell him, yeah, you actually do go back like was prophesied by Jeremiah, like was said by the prophets. You're going to go back. You are going to rebuild the temple. Uh, um, it is going to, it is going to happen, but, um, uh, there's going to be some problems. There's going to be some problems. It's going to answer a question. The question that we had in chapter 7 about how long the rebellious little horn oppresses the, the, the people of God. It's going to be explained to us in chapter 8. We had that. It came up a time, times, and time, and half a time. What does that mean? Well, it's actually going to give us some, a little explanation in this one. There's another shift that's going to happen. We're going to shift from Babylon to Susa in the Persian Empire. You're going to notice this right up. Daniel, when he has this vision, though he's still in exile, he's not in the city of Babylon. He's actually in the capital uh, uh, of um, Persia. He's in Susa. So we're going to see a shift in timing. In chapter 7, the vision came in the first year of Belshazzar. In chapter 8, it comes in the third year. Now, why? Why is that important? Well, how many know that if the Bible actually makes a point of telling you, there's probably a reason for it? There's probably a reason. And guess what? This is, this is somewhere around 51 to, uh, 551 to 550 B.C. And it's, it's a significant year in Mesopotamia. Hey. And, and Cyrus breaks free from his alliance with the Medes. And he establishes a joint kingdom as the Medo-Persian Empire. So, this is the year Cyrus takes over as king of the whole thing. Before uh, he comes to Babylon. So we've got, um, we've got Daniel in this place during this time that connects to the historical event that we're going to see has significance in chapter 8. We're going to see its significance as this opens up. So him mentioning this actually has significance in the vision itself. It's pretty cool. All these things relate. All right. So well, we're going to read it in a minute. But just so we get it in our head, what we're going to read, uh, looking at the big picture, uh, first, the first couple of verses are going to just tell us the setting I just talked about. And then, then uh, the, the next 14 verses, he's going to report this vision. He's, he has this vision, this supernatural vision. And we're going to see a ram. We're going to see a goat. And we're going to see the holy ones, the, the watchers, the, um, the uh, divine council, the sons of God, who we, we talked about quite a bit back. Um, we did a whole study, a whole week on them. 
um, they're going to they're going to be mentioned here. And then in chapter, I mean, verse 15 through 19, there's an interpreter that's going to appear, and Gabriel's going to come into the picture. And all of a sudden, so there's going to be some interpretation of this vision. And then in, in verse 20 through 26, that that interpretation is going to happen. Once again, we're going to go back to the ram. We'll spend a verse on that. We'll spend a verse on on the goat. And then this little horn comes up, and we're going to spend several verses on the little horn. And then there's this conclusion that we have. So. Um, that's that's kind of a that's where that's the movement through the story. How about if we read it now? Everybody want to read it? All right. So um, uh, for those that are joining us, we just had the projectors fixed, and guess what? <laughs> so that's why you don't see them up there. I will. Um, uh, I, I emailed the the notes out. If you want the notes, um, just ask me afterwards, and uh, I can email them to you, uh, um, and you can follow along. But tonight, if you want to read along. Turn to, to open your Bibles and turn to Daniel chapter eight, and I'm going to uh, read out of the text. Now, what's interesting? Those people listening at home, they don't look at those; it automatically comes on the screen. So, everybody listening at home is actually seeing all my notes. All right, let me take a sip here. And this is Daniel speaking in the first person here. Sorry, Daniel chapter eight, verse one. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the the first. And I saw in the vision, and and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and, and I was at Ulai, at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes, and I saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal, It had two horns. Both were high horns, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one, it came up last. And I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward, and no beast could stand before him. And there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased, and he became great. And as I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west, across the face of the whole earth, without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. And I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him, and he struck the ram Hang on. Uh, And he struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him. But he cast him to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. You notice these themes. No one could rescue. No one could rescue. No one could rescue from the ram. No one can rescue the ram now from the goat. Then the goat became exceedingly great. Notice the theme, became exceedingly great. Now this one's exceedingly great. And when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, 
toward the east and toward the glorious land. And it grew even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and it trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him. And the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. Notice this is about the sanctuary and temple. Things going on, which just means this is going to happen back in, his, in the land of Israel. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking. And another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering and the transgression that makes desolate and the giving over of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its right state. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and and when he came, I was frightened, and I fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he spoke to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, and he touched me, and he made me stand up. And he said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limits a king of bold face one who understands riddles shall arise and his power shall be great but not by his own power and he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints by his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand and in his own mind he shall become great Without warning, he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and mornings that has been told is true, but seal up for the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome, and I lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision, and I didn't understand it. I want us to put ourselves in Daniel's place for a minute, because we've heard these, some of us have heard these things over and over again, and it's easy to read them, easy to read them as a story. I want you to actually picture yourself having this dream. I want you to actually picture this terrifying ram that's trampling and doing as he pleases, And then this goat that comes and literally tramples this goat under his feet. These are so powerful, nobody can stop them. And 
Then he sees this little horn, and he's just as, as, as arrogant and disdainful of God. And he literally goes to the temple, and he's trampling out the temple. He's destroying the people of God. I mean, on the one side, you know, the thing Daniel's going to be praying for, that they go back from exile, that they return from exile, that the prophecy of the word of God comes to pass. That's what he's hoped for. He's been living 70 years, serving faithful in this foreign land, looking for the day that the people go back. And now that it's getting towards that time, it's getting towards that end, he has this vision. Of, yeah, when they go back, it's, you thought exile was bad. I mean, he's sick. Just a picture of the kind of depression He's experiencing as he's laying there. This is a highly emotional time for him. All right. So let's go through this. Let's break this down a little bit. Um, now, there are several things that are similar in this chapter uh, with chapter 7. So one of the ways we're interpreted is, is we're going to let, you know, we're going to draw all these similarities and, 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 and let the scriptures kind of move us forward in the story here. Um, first thing we get is what we're getting, we're moving back in time, right? We got to chapter six and chapter six, Babylon was over. He's in the land of, uh, of Medo-Persia. He's serving under Darius slash Cyrus. Um, and, uh, but now he says, I'm back in the third year of Belshazzar. This would be, this is, he, in other words, he's literally having this vision before Belshazzar was judged. Okay, think about that for a minute. He doesn't know about Belshazzar's judgment yet. I mean, hasn't experienced it yet. He hasn't experienced everything he experienced in the court with the Medo and Medes and Persians. And he's having a vision of God saying these are the things that are going to happen. And he lives this out. He actually lives through the vision that he had as God brings it to pass, or parts of it. He doesn't live through the whole thing. But he sees it begin to unfold. So this is number one. Number two, um, as I said, we're going from 553 B.C., the vision in chapter 7, and we're in 551 B.C. now. But both are during the, the reign of Belshazzar. Remember I said earlier it's really important to pay attention that Belshazzar, is the, it's, it's his reign that these visions are happening. Why is that? Because when we get to Belshazzar, what kind of king is he? He's blasphemous. He's presumptuous. He shakes his fist at God. And so he is literally this pale foreshadowing of the horrible evil kings that are coming. Now, what happened to Belshazzar? God judged him. So right away when we're watching these visions and we see these kings who come up, we should be making the connection. Yes, they are proud disdaining, boastful, arrogant, shaking their fist at God. But in the same way Belshazzar was judged, guess what's going to happen? They will be judged. So he becomes a type, a prototype, a, a, an archetype, if you will, of what's to come. Now, um, some of the differences. The location moves. Uh, in chapter 7, the, the vision was in Babylon. And it's, it, the, the, the vision spanned all of human history. Well, when, where was the first, where was Daniel the first time the book of Daniel had a vision that spanned all of history? Ooh, I got a stumper here. When, with the very first time in chapter two, when there's a, there's a vision in the book about, of, uh, that spans all of human history. Who has that vision? 
It's a, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. Where is Daniel when that vision occurs? He's in Babylon. That's right. He's in Babylon. You remember? Because Nebuchadnezzar calls for all the, all the wise men. He's going to kill them all because they can't interpret it. He's there in Babylon. This is an important detail. Okay? He's in Babylon when that vision occurs, when he has the dream about the four animals, which corresponds to the dream of the great colossal man. Where is he? He's in Babylon. He has those, both of those visions occur while he's in Babylon. Now, why is that important? Because he has this second vision. Where does it occur? It occurs in Susa. Now, Babylon's still reigning, but the vision occurs in Susa. Where's Susa? That's the capital of Persia. So what he's saying is even during the reign of Belshazzar, time for Babylon's over. It's over. It's already been pronounced. God's going to draw a line to the end of that. And he's having the vision for the next kingdom even before it happens. He has the vision in the place that the, that the, that the kingdoms are going to move forward on. This is not a detail to miss. This is what scripture, this is why Daniel, otherwise, why, what's the whole point of him sitting there telling you exactly where he is? Just to fill the pages? <laughs> they don't do that. All these details are to help move forward what's going on in the story. So at a time, at the, um, uh, now what's also interesting is he's there at the time when Cyrus just takes over. So they're not at their peak yet. And what's he going to have? He's going to have a vision about them growing to their peak and then them being trampled. And they haven't even come to their peak yet. Cyrus has just taken over. So the timing of it also tells you he's having it long before Cyrus accomplishes the great things he's going to have accomplished. Medo-Persia is going to be as great as it's going to be. And then it's going to get conquered by Greece. And he's having a prophetic vision about it happening ahead of time. Do you see why criti- some critical scholars go, well, this couldn't have been written you know, back then because God can't tell you the future before it happens. <laughs> this is why critical scholars want to put this in 2nd century you know, B.C., 3rd century B.C. in this time frame. Because it is so accurately predictive. And we're going to say, I haven't even touched the surface of how accurately predictive this is. We've got a lot more coming. So, uh, there's a significant change because it does not concern Babylon anymore. It only concerns the Medo-Persian Empire and the Macedonian or Greek empires. All right. Now, first thing we come to is the ram. It's the first picture that we see. The ram is what? What's it doing? It's in action. It's charging. It's going in these directions. Um, it's coming from the east. Because notice, it goes west, south, and north. So it's coming from the east. Um, it's charging. It has two horns. They're high horns, right? These ram horns, right? And one is higher than the other. Now, tell me, if we looked at the second beast, anybody remember what the second beast in chapter 7 was? The bear. Yeah. There's something about the bear. What was it? One side was bigger than the other. We get to the ram. What do we see? One horn is bigger than the other. Isn't that interesting? That's just a little detail. I mean, it doesn't mean anything, right? So, um, now, uh, it's, 
I, I, we're going to find out in a few minutes. There's two different views about who these kingdoms are. I hold to the Roman view. Um, Dr. Witter holds to the Greek, to the second Greek view, um, which is fine. Uh, you know, uh, it'll all, we'll all find out in the end. But to me, this is a correspondence here. This is a correspondence here. Now, the higher one came second. Okay? Um, which empire, the Medes or the Persians, were, were, were greater first? Anybody know? Take a guess. No? Which one came second? The greater one came second. Which one was greater, the Medes or the Persians? The Persians were greater than the Medes. So the Medes came first. The Persians came second. The greater horn came second. It's this, it's this imagery that's actually picturing the actual reality of these empires. You got the smaller horn, the Medo Empire was smaller, and, it, and he makes the detail in the scripture. He says, the higher one came second. He's actually telling you the, this combination of empires, the, the bigger one came second, which was the Persian Empire. It was unrestrained, it was undefeatable, it's doing what it pleases, this ram, until suddenly what appears? The goat. Okay, so the goat's the goat, man. Right? The goat appears, and all of a sudden, he's got one prominent large horn on the front of him, and he's coming from the west. Well, where's Greece? Compared to the, you know, the, you know this region, it's in the west. And so the, the detail here is actually telling us there's going to be this kingdom coming from the west. Uh, and, and, it's, and it's got this one prominent horn, and it's racing across the land. In fact, it's going so fast, what's it not doing? It's not touching the ground. Well, one of the things historians have just, just been amazed at over and over and over again was how fast Alexander the Great conquered the world. I mean, it's lightning speed for its time. He conquers the world. I mean, crazy fast. Daniel's having this vision where before the Medo-Persian Empire has conquered the world. He's telling us what's going to happen. This is crazy. So he's racing across. He charges at the ram. Uh, he breaks the horns of the ram. He knocks them down. He tramples them. He's in a furious rage. Nobody can rescue the ram. Notice, no one could rescue from the ram. Now no one can rescue the ram. He's, he exceeds the ram in greatness. Well, Alexander's kingdom was greater. But at the very peak, this large horn is broken. Just as soon as it gets to its greatest point. His, his scholars and historians talk about this all the time. I mean, they couldn't even imagine what Alexander could have done because of how great he had conquered the world. Now, there's something... Uh, this is... This is a little tidbit extra I'm just going to throw in here just because it's fun and I like to do this. There's something Alexander the Great did in, in conquering the world. What did he bring to the world? Ah, unifying language. Unified language. He created a unified language. It was Koine, common Greek. It wasn't the classical Greek. He took the classical Greek. It turned into a common language, and it became the language of commerce, the language of business. And that's going to become really important later in history. And we're going to sit here and wonder, why in the world would God allow empires like this? Why in the world would he do that? How in the world could he use things like that? Hmm. So all the world's now speaking Greek. In fact, I'm going to give you the punchline ahead of time. What empire comes after that? The Roman Empire. Anybody ever hear the saying, all what leads to Rome? 
All roads. See, we all know it. All roads lead to Rome. So the Romans, after they conquered, they created this incredible worldwide system to be able to travel, to be able to communicate, postal systems, to be able to get here and get there. In the meanwhile, we got a language that's common all over the world. In the meanwhile, the Jews have been what? They've been taken and exiled out of their land. And many go down and establish their land. But what, what do many do? They start synagogues all over this world. And in all of those synagogues, they translate the Bible into Greek. And so they can read the Bible in the language of the people. And they have roads to travel. Jesus comes along in the fullness of time and does what? Brings the gospel, the Holy Spirit falls on him, and Paul makes three missionary journeys. Just happens to have a road system he can travel. Writes all these letters to people all over the world in Greek. Just happens to have a language they're all speaking. And, and are able to read the Bible in their language because they just happened to write the Bible to a people who had been dispersed in the language of the common people. Total coincidence. Total coincidence. If that's not making the hair on your arm stand up, I don't know how. (laughs) It's like, God is sovereign and works through these things. He works through these things. So, this fourth, these, uh, uh, at the very peak of the power, this large horn broke, breaks off and four horns come out. Um, and then those four horns, uh, uh, um, are replaced by a fifth horn that comes out of one of the four horns. Now, now we get to the little horn. Now, it's interesting, it tells us, and it tells us this little horn starts small and then it grows great. And it encroaches upon the beautiful land. What's the beautiful land? Israel. And it reaches the hosts of heaven, throws down some of the starry hosts, tramples them and elevates itself to be the prince of hosts takes away the daily sacrifice brings the sanctuary low and prospers in all it does trampling truth to the ground it sounds like god might not be in control it feels like it sometimes it feels like it sometimes but notice this is all being prophesied long before it ever happens long before Then we get to these holy ones, these spiritual beings. We talked about them, the watchers, the the heavenly hosts, the sons of God, the divine council. And they're discussing how long these horrific events will last. And they're mentioning how long it lasts. Um, By mentioning how long it lasts, it's actually bringing a parallel to the lament psalms. Now, is anybody here not familiar with lament psalms? Okay, so in the Psalms, there's several different types of Psalms. There's three general types of Psalms. Um, uh, there's petition Psalms, there's praise Psalms. They're all, they, they, they have a, um, a, a kingly theme to them. And in these petition Psalms, many of these petition Psalms are what we call laments. See, let me put it this way. The Psalms, and not only in their worship and praise of God, are also very real in the existential reality of living in this world. And how many times does David or the psalmist stand up and say, my enemies are gathering around me. My enemies are crushing me. I am, you know, uh, um, all sides are coming against me. And he's just actually telling the, the, in, in this music form, it's worship to go before God in authenticity. And to bring all of that before him and lay it down before him. Because it's bringing it to him. 
And very often in these laments, he ends up, nonetheless, he ends up, he ends up in the place of the garden. If this, this cup can pass, let it pass. Nonetheless, not my will, but your will. And it tells us sometimes there are days like the cross. Sometimes there are days like the resurrection. But the only way you get to the days like the resurrection are days like the cross. And by, by giving this, this, by these watchers showing up and saying, listen, you're seeing this trampling. You're seeing this happening. But it's, it's, there's, it's bounded. It has an end. It stops. It doesn't go on. It's this lament. It's like the lament psalms. God will be victorious through this. Um, and so they function as a call for mercy. A call for mercy in the midst of this trampling. And they relate, they relate to the daily sacrifices. And they say the daily sacrifices are going to be terminated. They're going to stop the daily sacrifices. Now, and it says it's going to be for 2,300 morning and evenings. Now, why morning and evenings? Well, I mean, it's tying directly to the daily sacrifices. In the, 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 every day when the temple is up and it's operating, the, the, every day there is worship before God with two types of offering. In the morning, it's the shacharit uh, korban, which is the morning offering. And in the late afternoon, it's the micha korban, which is a gift offering. Um, and, uh, and they bring these every single day. And what's interesting, they're even allowed to violate Sabbath to do this. You never stop this. It's called a continual offering before the Lord. A continual offering. A continual praise. Pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. It's continual worship. It says this little horn is going to come in and is going to stop it. But how long? For 2,300 mornings and evenings. So if we want to know how many days it is, we just take and divide it by two, right? Because these are twice a day. So we're getting 1,150 days, which interestingly enough is... Just a little bit under three and a half years. What did we see was going to happen in in uh, um, chapter seven? A time times and half a time, well, about three and a half years. Interesting. We get this correlation now, a little bit more bigger picture. So there's some questions that we're going to ask, and we're not going to answer these questions tonight. You can ask me in the Q and A time if you like, um, and I'm going to offer you. Uh, um, uh, 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 an opportunity, and I'll go either way. I'm per- perfectly fine either way. I'm telling you ahead of time when we get into these questions, we can do one of two things. I can do next week and take and go dive into some of these questions, just like we did with Chapter 7. We had a whole list of questions, and then we took the second week to kind of dive into those and, and explore them a little bit. I could do the same thing, or we could just do our summary like we're doing now. We'll have lots more to come. And you don't have to tell me till we're done this tonight. And you can tell me whether or not you want to move on to chapter 9 or whether you want us to park another week on chapter 8 and kind of look at these things. So I'm offering that now. That's my commercial. Actually, I'm going to be taking a poll at the end of the study tonight. So you can, you know, pull out, get your, get your answers ready. Anyway, um, so here's the questions. Number one, this little horn is throwing down the starry hosts. What? Who are the hosts? Why would the little horn be throwing down? How can a little horn, the little horn be throwing down the host? We understand the host, the starry host. These are spiritual beings. Who are they? Are they spiritual beings? Or is it a reference to people? 
Um, and when we look at verse 11 and verse 12, th- these are grammatically, the scholars that understand, know the language, exegetes who go through this, they tell you it's very difficult to interpret these, these two uh, verses, these two sentences. There's a lot of disagreement in the sentences in tense and gender and syntax. And so they come up with different potential meanings. So we can dive into some of those different potential meanings, interpretations, have some fun there. Um, uh, um. Oh, I missed the leave out a slide. Yeah, now there's a slide missing here. Hold on. Okay, well, this is, no, actually there isn't. I, I've got them out of order. So this is a verse um, in there. It says this, is, but I will tell you, and this is out of, um, uh, 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 chapter 11 of Daniel I mean chapter 10 This is later And it says this But I will tell you what, what, what is inscribed in the book of truth There is none who contends by my side against these Except your, except Michael your prince And I'll tell you why I'm bringing that Why I'm reading that scripture Alright so here's another question um, Oops Let me get these lined up in sync I'm off on two different There we go um, So the question is Who is the prince? This prince that, that, is, that he throws down and he takes over as the prince of hosts. Who is he? Who's the, who's the commander of hosts? Who is this? I mean, it could be, uh, some, some could say it could be the, the uh, faithful Jews. Some could say that it was Onias the, uh, the, the third, who was the second high priest, second century high priest in Israel who was assassinated. Some say, because of this verse I just showed you, prince that ties to later prince Michael. Or it could be heavenly hosts, sorry hosts, and the prince, therefore, would be Yahweh. Hmm. So we could have some discussion about that. I, I, as, as usual, I do have an opinion. But anyway, um, uh, what does this daily sacrifice mean? Now, we've, we're, we're, we've, we have dived into that in, uh, quite a bit already. It's, it's literally talking about the daily offerings. There is some question about it. But, um, but the word for daily sacrifice literally just says the perpetual, um, the continual, the tamid. Um, but the tamid is a way of referencing, the tamid acharit is a way of referencing the daily sacrifices. And it's referenced that way in other places in the scripture. So, and, but, but by referring to it as the tamid, they're just doing, what they're doing is just giving a one word summary because it's not only the daily sacrifices that go away. This guy, this little horn comes in and obliterates all offerings. In fact, he goes far beyond that. So who is the host in verse 21? Same as before. Who are the army? Uh, um, are, are they the same as before? Is it the army of Anti, uh, Anti, and, um, Anti, Antiochus the fourth Epiphanes? Um, what is because of rebellion and transgression? Whose rebellion and transgression? It seems to be saying the little horn's tyranny over God's people is some sort of divine retribution. Is that what it means? And so these are all things that we can explore and we can get into. I don't know that we would necessarily get into every single one of them one week, but we can have some fun going into that. So I'll take your, take your, uh, your, your votes at the end. All right, let's keep going because we still got a lot more to get in. Those are things that we don't have time tonight to dive into because we got so much more to dive into we are going to get into tonight. All right. So what we're going to do now is we're going to compare and contrast this little horn. Why? Because we've got a little horn in chapter 7, and we have a little horn in chapter 8. Huh. So in, in, in both visions, this little horn is a, has, a prominent, has a prominent feature. So the, we ought to ask ourselves the question, 
Is this little horn the same person or is it two different people? Remember in chapter 7, we identified it as a person because it had human eyes. It had human mouth. It went from being a kingdom to a specific person. Um, so we understood that. But now we got, we got this little horn appearing again in this chapter. Are they both the same or are they two different? So let's first look at some similarities. The fact is they, they both represent the second stage of an empire's growth. The second stage of an empire's growth. In other words, an empire grows and becomes great, and it's the second stage. In chapter 7, it's when the beast has the ten horns, and then this uh, a little horn comes up, the eleventh. And, um, uh, and, um, and, it, and, it, and it knocks down three others. So it's, it's the second stage of that empire. In chapter 8... It comes up on the on the uh, a goat that has four horns. So in the first one, it's got ten horns. In this one, it has four horns. And it becomes the fifth one. So they both start small, and they both grow great. It's a little horn that grows exceedingly great. The other one, little horn that's, that's becomes extreme, extremely great. Um, they both engage in arrogant blasphemy. They both persecute and prevail against the holy ones. They both oppose God. They both are ultimately destroyed by God. So there's a lot of similarities between them. Are they the same or are they different? Well, are there any differences? Let's take a look. In chapter 7, well, there's the ten horns replaced by the eleventh. So we got one positioning in, 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 in a kingdom. In chapter 8, it's four horns replaced by a fifth. Is that symbology that's just uh, being pictured a different way? Or is it actually trying to tell us two different things? In chapter 7, the little horn uproots three others. But you don't see any uprooting going on in chapter 8. So there's a difference here. There's a distinction. Chapter 7, it's focusing. Now catch this. This is an interesting distinction. Chapter 7, it focuses on the holy ones. In chapter 8, it focuses on the holy place. In chapter 7, it's desecrating the holy ones. In chapter 8, it's desecrating the holy place. Now the holy ones get desecrated as a, as a, as a result, but the focus is different. The time frame in chapter 7 is three and a half years. It's told us it's time, times, and half a time. But in chapter 8, it's told 2,300 mornings and evenings. So are they the same or are they different? Now, that all depends on whether you hold the Greek view or the Roman view. So this is where these two different views become important as to how you're going to end up interpreting the Scriptures. Now, um, I'm going to ask, who can remember? Let's, let's start here. If we go back to Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had a vision. He had a great colossal man, right? And that great colossal man had a head of what? Gold. Who was that? Nebuchadnezzar, okay? Then he had arms and chest of silver. In the Roman view, uh, that's Medo-Persia. In the Greek view, it's just the Medes, Okay? Then there's the, the, the body. What, color, what was the body? It was bronze. Okay? So I'm going to back up a little bit. I want to do this. The head of gold in chapter 7, what was the head of gold? What beast? The king of the jungle. Yeah. A lion with wings. Eagle's wings. Stood up like a man. Both representing Babylon. So we get the arms and chest of silver. In chapter 7, what was the beast? The lopsided bear. It was the lopsided bear. 
So in the Roman view, that's the Medo-Persian Empire. In the Greek view, that's just the Medes. Then we get the, the waste of bronze um, in, in, uh, in, the, in, the, uh, um, in the great colossal man. In, the, in chapter 7, what animal is it? Leopard. And how many heads does it have? Four heads. How many wings does it have? Four wings, four heads. This leopard that comes out. Now, in the Roman view, that is the Greek Empire. Okay? Why? Um, uh, you've got um, the, the, the four horns of the goat correspond to the, are corresponding to the four heads of the, um, of the leopard. Okay? In the Greek view, that becomes the Persian Empire. Um, now, you'll see why they differ in a minute and, and why that's important. And then, finally, you get to the legs that are iron and feet are mixed with clay, right? That's the Roman Empire um, uh, in, in the Roman view. And what animal is that in chapter 7? Hey, it's this ferocious beast with, with teeth of, uh, 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 claws of bronze, teeth of iron that's devouring. I mean, it's just a fearful beast. And, and we don't, you know, he can't even describe it, right? And so, um, in the Roman view, that's the Roman Empire. In the Greek view, that's Alexander the Great. That's the Greek Empire. All right. Now, how does all this correspond? Well, if I believe that little horn is the same in both chapters, I would be going with the Greek view. Why? Because the little horn is clearly the Greek Empire. So... It's, if I think it's the same, in chapter 8, it tells us it's the, he comes out of the Greek Empire. And, I, and we can actually identify him, and we will in a minute. He's coming out of the Greek Empire. So that means the legs must be the Greek Empire. But if I believe it's two separate, which I happen to believe it's two separate. I'm giving my punchline ahead of time um, because I see differences between them. I think the differences are stronger than the similarities, um, and I think there's reasons for it. Um, uh, then, um, then it, then it would have to be the Roman empire because this is the Greek empire and it has to be the different empire. Does that, does everybody follow that? I know it's a little bit confusing, but everybody follow that. Okay. All right. So now we're going to interpret the, we're going to go, we're going to find out how the angel interpreted the, the, the vision. So. Daniel's standing there, and he's, and he's reflecting on what he just saw. And he just had this vision. It's really disturbing. He can't figure it out, and he's, and he's thinking about it for a minute. And what's interesting, as he's reflecting on it, he actually is taken back into a visionary state. And he sees Gabriel. This is kind of cool. You know, there's a few people that have seen Gabriel. Can, t- can anybody tell me about two other people who saw Gabriel? Mary. Very good. Mary's one. Zacharias, John the Baptist's dad. That's right, Zechariah, the priest. Okay, um, and so Gabriel's kind of—he's a—he's a tough dude. You know, he's an archangel. He is a high-level spiritual being. Okay, um, and uh, so D- Daniel hears this voice that's coming across from the, the canal. This voice tells Gabriel who he's seeing. Uh, now, notice he, he, Gabriel is, is appears how to Daniel. As a man, appears as a man. I'm going to su- submit this to you now. I challenge you. Look through the scriptures. Find me anywhere in the Bible angels ever appear and have wings. 
They don't. They always appear as men. Angels never have wings. There are other spiritual beings that have wings, but never angels. You never see an angel has wings anywhere in the Bible. Anyway, but that's the only way we picture them. And Anyway, interesting. Um, so Gabriel tells him the vision. And he says this. He says it concerns the time of the end. And he also calls it later in the time of wrath or the appointed time of the end. Um, so uh, what's really important to understand about that reference is those are temporal references. They can but do not have to refer to final end. There are many places in the scriptures where there are prophecies that say at the last days or in the end times. When it's referring to an, an epoch of some sort. When it's referring to um, an event of some sort that's going to be a finality. Um, and it's interesting, uh, you know, if we were to dive into Matthew, you'd see how Jesus even does the same thing. When he's talking about the destruction of the temple and then yet talks about another ending coming later. Um, and so... Um, so it would be a mistake for us to only see that, well, he's talking about end times here. He's talking about the final times. Um, uh, the, the, what's most important to take from it is this. There is an appointed end. There are appointed times in which evil ceases and God says enough is enough. This is the point. This is what the, Gabriel is trying to communicate. At the end, when the evil stops, the evil will stop, it will have a point, and this is when it's over, this far and no more. This actually goes back to creation. How does this go to creation? Because if you, if you, uh, when you look at creation and, and what happens, the very first sentence of scripture, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and it says it was, it was, um, without form, uh, it was empty, it was darkness over the waters, it was the spirit of, uh, of the Lord hovering over the deep, the abyss. And so what did you had? You had this chaotic, empty, dark, formless, void, t- tempestuous abyss, bottomless abyss, represented pictorially by seas, by tempestuous seas. No life can occur. No, uh, no um, uh, uh, completely destructive to life itself. And then what's it say? God begins to create. And God spoke. You had darkness. What's he speak? There's light. And God spoke. You had, uh, uh, um, you had all this chaos. What's he do? He separates the chaos. And he brings up land. And he puts the dome over the land. And he begins to put shape where there's nothingness. And God spoke. And what's he do? He creates the plants. He creates the fish. He creates the birds. He fills the emptiness. So he takes the chaos and makes order. And then he takes the emptiness and puts life. So he takes darkness and brings light. He takes the um, uh, uh, emptiness and, and gives it um, gives the, the uh, emptiness and gives it form. Chaos gives it form and then takes emptiness and fills it with life. And what's he doing? He has, he's having dominion over the whole thing, taking everything and bringing order. And then he creates you and I, and he says, you are now have, have the responsibility that I had in taking all of this and bringing order in the midst of it. He, now, how would we do that? Because he doesn't get rid of the darkness. He simply says, darkness, you need to stop here, and then we'll have light. He says, chaos, you need to stop here, and then we'll have land to the deep. He says, life, you are to come up and you are to be perpetuated. And now you 
or to have dominion over all of that. You're to make it flourish. You're to be my imagers. You're to reflect what I have done here, here. Okay? He's bounded these things from the beginning. He's bounded the chaos. He's bounded the darkness. He's bounded the death. And he's continuing to do it. That's what he's been doing from the beginning. He's called us to work with him in doing that until the day that it's consummated and it's all destroyed. But through it, he brings his purposes. What are those purposes? Bringing you and I into that identity. Into that fullness. He left it in a place to bring you and I into that so that he could enjoy it with us. Do you see this? And so this is what he's saying here. This, this is the appointed time. Daniel, there is, it, evil is bounded. There is a point that it doesn't go any further. God is in charge. No human king, no uh, um, unearthly power has ultimate charge. God will end all wickedness, but it will be done at his right time. And this is the, this is the, the, the angel, this is Gabriel speaking to him. So he says, now that ram, he tells us straight up, that's the Medo-Persian Empire. Okay? Which, which is why um, uh, I don't think the two animals are the Medes and Persians. I think these animals correspond. This is another reason why I hold the Roman view. Um, I think the animals correspond. I don't think you had Medes and then Persians, and then in two animals in the first vision, and then one animal in the second. I think they correspond. So the bear, the, the ram, the, the lopsidedness. But then, uh, then you get this goat that has a large horn, and this is Greece, and it's Alexander the Great. We've already mentioned him. But then you got these four horns. Now, this is fascinating. If you know your history, this is totally fascinating to me. Because here it is, Daniel prophesying this in 551 B.C., and several hundred years later, Alexander the Great comes along. He conquers the world, dies suddenly, and, and Alexander, they, they, when he's on his deathbed, they said to him, they said, said who's, who's next? Who rules next? Who takes over after you? We got to know. We got to know. And he said, fight it out. And whoever's the strongest gets it. Have a battle. Fight it out. Let's see who's strongest. And so guess what? His four generals take over and split it up. He's got four generals. One of his name is Cassander, and he takes over Macedonia and Greece. He goes back home. He's got another one, Lysimachus, and he takes over Asia Minor, you know, modern-day Turkey in that region there. There's another one, Seleucus, and he's an important one, because we're going to talk about him in a minute, and his kingdom, the Seleucid kingdom. He takes over Mesopotamia and all the eastern regions. And then you get the Ptolemies. Anybody heard of the Ptolemies? You get Ptolemy, he goes down and he takes from south, south portion of Syria, and then Palestine and Egypt, and, he, and that's his region. And these four kings are reigning. All prophesied by Daniel, several hundred years before it comes, these four kings. Now, we're going to pay attention to Seleucus and Ptolemy for a minute, the Seleucid Empire and the Ptolemaean Empire. Why? Because they're the ones that have control of the land where Israel is. And we're going to get more into these empires as we get into these further chapters, because this is going to come up more. We're going to see more detail in this when we get to 9, 10, 11, and 12. And, um, in the latter part of their reign, the latter part of these empires, there's going to be a king that's going to arise. And this king is called the Master of Intrigue. It says he's stern-faced. He's a master of intrigue. He's stern-faced. You can't poker-faced. Right? Um, he's the little horn of chapter 8. And this little horn, this master of intrigue, we know him as um, Antiochus the Fourth, 
epiphanies. So you'll hear me sometimes I'll say Antiochus because that's the way I've said it for years, but I'm, I'm thinking I'm learning now that it's Antiochus. I've been mispronouncing it all this time. But sometimes I can't remember it and do my old habits. So Antiochus the fourth Epiphanes. Now, the guy's so arrogant, he literally calls himself Epiphanes. I am it. I am the Epiphany, the Revelation, the Great One. That's how arrogant this guy is. He calls himself Epiphany. He rose up in power in 175 B.C., and he died in 163 B.C. And so uh, in 167 B.C., he's like, he's like done with the Ptolemies. He's had it. And he raises up his army, and he goes down and just dem- demolishes the Ptolemies, and he takes over the, Israel, the region of Israel. And, and the Ptolemies are kicked down to Egypt. Remember, the Ptolemies came all the way up to southern Syria. Syria is north of Israel. He pushes them all the way down to Egypt, and now he is over the region of Israel. This Antiochus the Fourth Epiphanes. Now, he horribly desecrates Jerusalem. He destroys the temple. He goes in. Uh, um, he stops all the sacrifices. In fact, he starts sacrificing pigs on the altar. He puts up a, a, um, a statue of um, Zeus in there. And, and he starts telling he starts telling the Jews uh, um, what time we got he starts telling the Jews that um, anybody that that uh, keeps kosher diet or keeps Sabbath tries to do the um, the daily offerings we're going to kill you he starts killing them if they try to worship God this is what he does I'll, I'll just read a little bit I'm debating whether I should do. Many of the people, that is, every apostate from the law, this is what I'm reading from is the book of Maccabees. This is First Maccabees, um, which is a, uh, writes this history of um, what Antiochus IV Epiphanes did. So we're reading this being prophesied here, right? And now we're reading the history of what actually happened. Um, and this is out of the, the first chapter of uh, the book of Maccabees, um, um, uh, somewhere around verse 52. That is, every apostate from the law rallied to them and so committed evil in the country, forcing Israel into hiding in all their places of refuge. So every apostate, there's a bunch of people in the land who decided to be on the king's side. Hey, look, we're, you know, this is culture, man. He's got the power. They're saving their own skin and uh, turning against their own people to save their skin. On the 15th day of Chislev, in the year uh, 145, the king erected the abomination of desolation above the altar. And the altars were built in surrounding towns of Judah and incense offered at the doors and houses and in the streets. In other words, pay, this is pagan offering. They built all these pagan temples, uh, altars all over the place and started offering all these pagan offerings all throughout Israel. The abomination of desolation, bringing an idol into the Holy of Holies, sacrificing pigs on the altar. Worshiping foreign gods. Any books of the law that came to be that came to light were torn up and burned. Whenever anyone was discovered possessing a copy of the covenant or practicing the law, the king's decree sentenced him to death. If you had a Bible, you're killed. Had 
Having might on their side, they took action month after month against any offenders they discovered in the towns of Israel. On the 25th day of the month, sacrifice was offered on the altar erected over the Holocaust. The Holocaust is a, um, is a, it, 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 uh, is a reference to the altar. It means something that's totally burnt up. Um, interesting that it's used to refer to you know, what went on in, in World War II. But it's actually the Greek word for um, the Olam Korban, uh, the burnt offering. We call it the burnt offering. It's the one offering that's completely consumed when it's put on the altar. The, the Greek word for it is holocaust. So it's, it's a reference to that. I don't want you to think it was a, you know. A, a, um. So women who had had their children circumcised were put to death according to the edict. This is disgusting. I'm not even going to read it. It's just horribly disgusting. And the members of their households and those who had performed the circumcision were executed with them. Yet there were many in Israel who stood firm and found the courage to refuse unclean food. They chose death rather than contamination by such fair or profanation of the Holy Covenant, and they were executed. It was a dreadful wrath that visited Israel. Now this went on until uh, in this one particular town there was a priest, and he had five sons. And, uh, and, they, and one of these officials comes to town, and this priest was very influential. One of these officials comes to town and says, hey, I want you to, um, I want you, we're going to, you know, we're going to have the, the, the offering to the pagan gods here. And I want you as the, as the most influential person in town to come up and, and do it so, it so it'll convince everybody to do it. He's like, I'm not doing that. And then I'm not happening. And so finally, one guy comes along and says, I'll do it. He goes up and does it. When he does it, it says in Maccabees, it says, the zeal of Phineas. How many know who Phineas was? So Phineas was, was uh, one of the sons, was, was a priest, one of the sons of the priest. Uh, I think he's a grandson of Aaron. And um, uh, during, during uh, there was a point before, when they were in the wilderness, when the Israelites were outside of Moab. And Balaam had convinced the Moabites to say, if you want to conquer the Israelites, you've got to conquer them by getting them to turn against their God. And you want to know how you do that? You get, you get your women to go over and seduce them and say, look, you can have me if you worship foreign gods. And so the women started seducing the men in Israel, and a plague started coming across. And this one guy goes in with one of the this one of these takes one of these Moabite women into a tent, and Phineas, being a priest, says, "This is not happening in my house." And he goes over and he takes a spear and puts it right through the guy's heart and stops the plague in Israel and stops the false worship, which was destroying them. Well, it says that this high priest in this town, when this is going on, and this guy steps up and he decides to put a pagan offering on there, he says, no, this is not happening. And he goes and assassinates him. And that's, that's what started the Maccabean Revolution. He and his five sons, in fact, one of his sons is called Judas Maccabees. That's where we get the name Maccabees. The hammer. The hammer. And it starts this revolution in which they th- end up throwing off the Greeks. And it begins the, what, the rule of what's called the Hasmonean uh, priesthood, the Hasmonean. The, uh, the zeal was awesome. The zeal for God was awesome. The throwing them off, the, the, the willingness to lay their life down was awesome. All of that was right and in accordance. But they made a fatal mistake in history. Once they had taken over, they kept power and they fought over kingship. When kingship doesn't belong to the priesthood. And because they fought over, over the, the, the power for priesthood, 
Guess who took advantage of it and went to Caesar, because by now the Romans are ruling, and went to Caesar to take over Israel? Herod the Great. Herod the Great. That's how this all plays in. But there is something huge that comes out of this, a very, very important event. After this, revol- this revolution, this revolt, and they throw them off, they rededicate the temple and they set it up. And this rededication starts a whole new ceremony, a whole new holiday called, it's called the Feast of Dedication. And we know it as Hanukkah. We know it as Hanukkah. And that's what Hanukkah is all about. There's all kinds of traditions and things. And I'm not going to get into it. You can read about it in here. You can read about it. Josephus writes about it if you want to get the history on it. But I'm, I'm saying all this because we, we can open up. Do you know where is the one place in all of the Bible that Hanukkah is actually in the Bible? Anybody know? It's in the Gospel of John. It's in the New Testament. Jesus goes into the temple on the Feast of Dedication. He goes to worship on Hanukkah. See how all this comes together? When you know this, and you can put all these pieces together. This is out of this vision Daniel's having in this moment in time. I just think these things are fascinating. Mm. All right. So this angel tells Daniel to seal up this vision. Daniel's literally visibly shaken. He's ill for days. He can't quite figure out what this vision means. It's got staggering implications. I mean, he literally saw in symbolic form what we just read. No wonder he was terrified. No wonder he was terrified. I, I read the history for you to get the feeling for what actually happened, why he would be terrified at what he saw. The exile was, to him, up until this point, the exile was the worst thing that had happened to God's people. They were clinging to the hope that this exile is going to be over. God's going to restore him, them. God's going to restore the land. God's going to restore the temple. And God did. He restored all of that. But this vision says at a future time, God's people are going to be back in the land. They're going to be a restored temple. And, the, and, and they hadn't yet seen the worst. So chapter 7 ends with the hope of one coming like the Son of Man. And we get to the end of chapter 7, and that kingdom is destroyed. One like the Son of Man comes. We got the kingdom of God. It's happening. But chapter 8 ends in a different place. It just ends. The evil won't last forever. That's how it ends. God will bring an end to evil. It ends with a negative ending. It doesn't include the glimpse of hope of the coming positive of chapter 7. Now, why is that important? Remember I told you, they didn't write the same way in the ancient world that we write today. We're always looking for the conclusion at the end of the book. This is why we said earlier, chapter 7 is the center, is the main point of the book. It's the hinge. It's the central focus. It's where these, uh, um, and and from chapter 7, we got all these stories that build up to chapter 7. And now we're going to have all these visions that are going to end with darkness. They're building from chapter 7. Why? Because we then want all of these visions to take us back to chapter 7. The one like the Son of Man and the Holy Ones reigning with him. That's it's, it's the way they wrote. And so it's like if we got to the end of the book and there was victory. Well, they put their end up front or in the middle. So the big picture. Um, I already went over this really already. You had the Roman view with two little horns. 
Um, one is Greece and one from Rome. You have the Greek view, one little horn. It's the same person in the Greek empire. And this is the bottom line to that, okay? Um, Daniel's visions, these visions he's having, primarily concern 2nd century B.C. and events that are going to happen uh, during the reign of terror with and, and, uh, um Antiochus the fourth epiphanies they primarily concern that in other words these visions have a real fulfillment in this point in this time So we're coming to the conclusion right here. This is the end but these visions also Speak grander and more they have a pattern they're part of a pattern This this book establishes this pattern and notice where we begin in these visions we begin with Belshazzar this blasphemous arrogant fist shaking king he becomes a prototype of of all the foreshadowing evil kings that follow he's only the beginning see daniel's visions the little horn is what or these both little horns they're far worse they clearly the the, the second one especially clearly fits antiochus the the, the fourth epiphanies um, we're going to see more about this coming in the next few chapters but they also fit someone far worse. They also fit Antichrist. And so this is one of the things that happens uh, with Scripture. It's called the telescopic view of Scripture. What do I mean? And I'm going to give you an example of it here. He prophesies that the, you know, it's coming up. He'll be prophesying the abomination of desolation. We just read about the abomination of desolation. And we see it fulfilled with Antiochus the Fourth Epiphanes. Well, if it was fulfilled and that happened, why is Jesus saying when you see the abomination of desolation as prophesied in Daniel? Well, if it already happened, how is he saying it's going to happen? Hmm. It's the telescopic view of prophecy. Some of these things happen. It's like a telescope. It has a section and it opens up a broader section and it opens up a broader section. And I think this is what's going on with the little horn, this little horn. Because why? Because there are things like trampling down starry hosts. How can a man trample down starry hosts? Unless that man represents more than just a man. How can a man put in place in the place of God? Well, he can. We saw Nebuchadnezzar do it. We saw Belshazzar do it. But we also know there are spiritual forces that do the same thing. And so these things, by giving, by using this kind of language, they communicate very real things, very real events, but they also communicate more. And we may, it's not for us to sit here and try to put charts and maps together. And that's not the whole point of this. There's a pattern. There's a growing evil, and there's a growing threat against God's people. And we're going to see that. That is throughout history. It's been in every one of our stories. We've been seeing it. Now we're seeing it in every one of the visions. It starts, the whole book starts because of that. But the pattern also tells us God's always in control. Evil um, um, uh, has a leash on it. God will destroy it. It says it will go this far and no more. Darkness stops here. Then we have light. Notice something about creation. Notice this. We have day backwards. We say the day begins with light and ends in darkness. In the Bible, it begins in darkness and ends in light. Hmm. Darkness shall go this far and no more. And then there's light. Bam. Uh, he will establish his kingdom and its fullness. He will reign forever with his holy ones. That is the power of Daniel. It's not to be this detailed chart to try to, Jesus is coming back right here. <laughs> it's not that. Because why? Because we have to change that chart every time the news changes. 
is to tell us that no matter what human kings do, God's in control. That evil human king thinks he might be doing one thing. God just wanted the Greek language in the world. That human king thought he was doing something else. God just wanted a road system built. You see? I'll give you another one. That evil king thought he was going to number the entire world. God just wanted one young couple to move 70 miles. Moved on, an, moved on an empire to take a census of the entire world to get one young couple to go 70 miles. Nazareth to Bethlehem. No matter how hellish the world can and will get, God's on the throne. We can endure whatever suffering we will face, which we will face, but someday it ends. Someday the glorious kingdom of God will fill the earth. Why? Because that's what he said in the beginning. Be my imagers. Fill the earth, multiply, subdue it, and have dominion in my name. So take heart. We do three things. We need to take heart. We need to press on. And we need to be faithful. That's the point of Daniel. All right, let's pray. Father, we bless you. We thank you that you've given us this word. We thank you that you've preserved it for us. I pray that we are encouraged by it. We thank you for the great cloud of witnesses who have gone before us, who have stood in their time, in their generation, in their day, who have refused to bow down, who have had the, 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 the courage to say, no matter what, we will not bow down. Father, may we in our day have the same courage. May we bear your name well. May we not bear it in vain. May we reflect your image rather than bowing down to the images of the world. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so once Sally turns me off, we can talk, but the first thing we need to do is to do our straw poll. So since she gets